Hello, welcome to a new series entitled Romans. My name is Jonathan Chan. I'm so glad that you are able to join us today. Before we begin, let us start off with a video clip. And so sit back, relax, enjoy the clip, and we'll be right back. Touch bead one. Homer, maybe we should be concerned. Alex can be a peculiar bunch. No birth control, no meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat, light bulbs? Let's just change the subject. Barb, would you like to say grace? Yes, um, in omni patris et filii et spiritus sancti. Art, what the hell are you saying? That's Latin, Dad. The language of Plutarch. Mickey Mouse's dog? No, Plutarch. He chronicled the lives of the Roman emperors. Oh, I didn't need that new fact. Now I forgot who won Bud Bowl 8. Oi, I'm pulling you out of that crazy school. Now, before we begin, here's what we will do today. First, let's quickly do a recap of what we know of the Jews. Namely, let's use the recent book we studied, Genesis, since it's still fresh in our minds. Why are we doing that? Well, because our author of Romans is Paul, and he is a Jew. And for Jews, Genesis is their story. It's also part of the Torah, i.e. one of the books of the law, which is one of the five books of the law. And they read it and practice it every day, religiously. So it's important to go and review Genesis. Genesis is also a part of their ethos. It's who they are. Because it's when God chose Abraham, made a covenant with him and his descendants, i.e. Jews, to be separated from the rest of the world so that they can usher all nations to God's presence. It's where their covenant was. It's where their first encounter of God was. And so Genesis is very important for the Jews. Also, Genesis reminds Jews often and frequently that God made and continuously renew and affirm his promise with them, i.e. continually remain faithful to the covenant with them, that no matter how many times they screw up, God will always give them a chance to come back and remain in the covenant. So Genesis is an important book. And very important to our author, Paul, because, as I said, he too was a Jew. Apparently, a Jew of all Jews, a very ethnic Jew, a culturally in tune, very knowledgeable of all the books of the Old Testament, and knows all the Jewish traditions, Jew. Second, we will take a look at what prompted Paul to write the letter of Romans. Paul writes letters in response to something that was happening. He doesn't do it just because he feels like it. Something was happening in the church in Rome among both Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians that prompted him to write to them. So we'll get into that as well. And lastly, we will then delve into the passage today of chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. Because once we get to know the two groups Paul is writing to, i.e. the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians, i.e. Gentile Christians, what was going on in Rome, we can then delve into the first 17 verses of Romans. And here's my point that I want to make today. Jesus is the true king, the Lord of all. And humanity, you and I, are commanded to believe in him. This believing 
This faithfulness, this pastuo in Greek, is what unites all God's people. Let's begin with Genesis. To summarize, if you were going to ask me to give you one word to describe or summarize the entire book of Genesis, what would it be? I would use the word grace. By God's grace, he chose and made a promise to Abraham and his group of family that they will be the nation to bear his promise to redeem the world and save the world from evil, death, and decay. That this nation from Abraham will usher all nations into his presence and into this very redemptive covenant. That regardless how many times these guys screw up, and boy, if you've been with me and Dan throughout the whole entire journey of Genesis, they screwed up many times. By God's grace, God orchestrated events and circumstances that gave them the opportunity to repent, trust, and obey him again. That as long as they live a life of faith, i.e. faithfulness, which is trusting God and obeying him and his commands, they will remain in his promise, i.e. covenant. The covenant that they knew they did not deserve or even earned it, but was by God's grace that God, by his grace, gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they knew that they couldn't earn it, they couldn't work for it, nor do they could have earned brownie points to get it. It was by God's grace that they have this covenant. And in order to respond to this grace, in order to have an appropriate response to this grace, they are called to be faithful to God, i.e. trust and obey him. And up till Romans, that's what the Jews believed. That's what the Jewish Christians believed. The Jewish Christians knew that it wasn't about doing things to get into the covenant. They knew it wasn't about the brownie points. They knew that it was by God's grace that they were given this covenant. And they knew that in order to remain in the covenant is to respond appropriately to God's grace, which is to be faithful, i.e. to trust and obey his commands. See, the Jews in general were eagerly waiting for God to be faithful to this covenant, to redeem the world from evil, death, and decay to redeem those who were faithful to him. They were eagerly waiting for that. They were eagerly waiting for God's presence to arrive, to have his anointed king to arrive, his representative, the son of God to arrive, rule the world. And also they were eagerly expecting the Holy Spirit to indwell in them, embody them so that they do not experience death, i.e. have they were able to have resurrection. Just look at the prophet Joel. That's what all Jews expected. Now, for the Jewish Christians specifically, they too were expecting this. They were waiting eagerly, just as equal as their Jewish uh, peers. And now, though, one thing differs. They encountered Jesus. They were the ones who encountered Jesus. And they realized that Jesus fulfilled this covenant and it's good news. Hence, it's rejoicing for them to rejoice and say, this is good news. This is the gospel. The fulfillment of the covenant has arrived in Jesus. So, second, what was going on in Rome? Well, like today's city centers, 
for example, here in Vancouver, Rome's population back then was a mix of immigrants, from Greek-speaking to Latin-speaking to Jewish to non-Jewish to barbarian to non-barbian or, or to what Paul would say the wise and the foolish. It was a mixed bag of immigrants in Rome. The gospel of Jesus was spreading worldwide and Jewish Christians were there. They built a church and a Christian community in Rome grew out of it. And this Christian community continued to evangelize the good news to everyone and not just the Jews, but to everyone they encountered. Now, just a little bit about Rome's view towards Jews in general. Their attitude towards Jews, regardless whether they were Christian or not, was of suspicion. They didn't feel comfortable with their traditions and rituals. For example, the practice of Sabbath. To many of the non-Jewish Romans, they thought this was a lame excuse for laziness and skipping out on work. Just think about it. Many of us Christians take Sunday off, and some of us, like myself, impose it on myself to take a Sabbath. Many non-Christians may think that this is a sorry-ass excuse of laziness to just skip out on work. And that's what the Romans, how the Romans saw the Jews. And also, they were a little suspicious on their eating habits. Why don't they eat bacon? That's so absurd. And also, circumcision. Are you kidding me, they would say? Circumcision? Where many of the Roman statues glorified those body parts, the Jews were willing to cut them off. What the heck? Now, for the Jewish Christians, there was a double down on this suspicion. Not only are the non-Jewish Romans suspicious because of their rituals, suspicious of their um, dieting habits, and the suspicion of their Sabbath rituals, etc., and festivals, because these Jewish Christians worship and say Jesus is their king, the king of the world, the son of God, the good news, the Jewish Christians are identifying this guy named Jesus with the very phrases that the Caesars used on themselves. Messiah, king of the world, son of God, good news. Caesar Augustus, for example, used all of them to refer to himself. So, the suspicion escalated to the point of making Caesar Claudius really uncomfortable. So uncomfortable that he made an edict, or more like an evict. He ordered all Jews, regardless whether they were Jewish Christians or not, he, he ordered all Jews out of Rome. Some who were Roman citizens were able to stay, but historians generally agreed that there was a mass eviction. So much so that the Jewish Christians who planted the church in Rome all left. And the only ones left inside the church were the Gentile Christians, the non-Jews. Five years later down the road, another Caesar came into power and his name was Nero. And he removed that evict and invited the Jews to come back. Nero's reasoning apparently was purely economical. Rome was broke, he, didn't, he needed a new toilet, and in order to do so, needed more pay, people to pay taxes. So, what better way than to open up the gates and let immigrants to come in again? Go figure. So when the Jewish Christians came back to the church they planted five years earlier, what did they find? Their church was not the same as they left it. 
the Gentile Christians changed everything they say. They included a drum set on stage. They sang Chris Tomlin music and not hymns. They ate bacon. The men wore skinny jeans and had these weird haircuts and plaid shirts. And the women wore Lululemon yoga pants with Starbucks coffees in their hands. And even their Jewish rituals, like circumcision, disappeared. What happened to it? In fact, as they were listening to the Gentiles teaching and the theology on the pulpit, it was kind of different. What happened? So they did what anyone would do. They told them to stop. They told the Gentiles that they needed to get rid of that drum set and start going back to the original. And just like any teenager would today, what was the Gentiles' response? Well, here's what N.T. Wright said. Quote, they would say, God had done a new thing. Israel may have been the place where it all began, but now that it had been left behind, all those rules and regulations, the law with its taboos, dietary restrictions, special holidays, all of it was gone. Christianity was now for the Gentile world, they say. So they might have thought. End quote. So basically, these Gentile Christians are telling off the Jewish Christians that they are passé. Get on with it. Time to evolve. Those traditions are no longer relevant. This whole chosen people thing, it's gone. It's open to everyone. Freedom in Christ, they say. So they say, though. So, the bickering got so bad that guess who heard about it? You guessed it, Paul. A letter was written to him, or even reported to him in person by Jewish Christians named Priscilla and Aquila. They probably told Paul, Paul, these Gentile Christians did such and such and this and that. Tell them to stop. We can't have this. We will be disobeying God and God's covenant will be jeopardized just like long ago in Genesis. The church is on the brink of division, separation, chaos. Paul, help us out here. Paul, as a loving pastor, writes to the Christians in Rome, both Gentile and Jewish Christians, and addressed all their concerns and bickering point by point. And folks, this is where we get the letter Romans. So now you know the Jewish story and throughout that when we review Genesis and the kerfuffle that prompted this letter, we now go into the letter starting with verses 1 to 17. Let's begin. Verses 1 to 7. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophet in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles in behalf of his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, a period. In the Greek New Testament, which I use, I don't know if I have it here with me. No, I must have put it all away. This from verse 1 to 7 is actually a run-on sentence. Hence, I tried my very best to just say it all in one breath, and I miserably failed in the middle. All right now. Now that we know 
who Paul is talking to, which is the Jewish and Gentile Christians, and the crisis that this church was having at the moment that prompted Paul to write to them, what did Paul do first? Did he go right into the jugular of all issues that were creating this division within the church? No. For the first few chapters, yes, chapters, he reminds both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians as to what unites them. Jesus, the embodiment of the good news, i.e. the gospel for all. Jesus is the true king of the world in the line of David. David, the very first king way before Caesar even knew there was a thing. Jesus is the true king and son of God, not Caesar. Why is that? Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was raised dead. Death didn't conquer him. You see, death is the very weapon that Caesar used to demonstrate his power to the nations. Well, death is no longer a threat to Jesus. It's nothing to Jesus. So who has the power now, big boy? Jesus. And because he has risen from the dead, he is king of the world. He embodies the Holy Spirit, which makes him the true son of God. He has fulfilled all Jewish expectations of salvation. The very covenant is fulfilled. Good news has come to all. By God's gracious act, as he's shown to his people many times over since Genesis, God has now fulfilled the covenant he made with Abraham. That through Jesus, who is Abraham's descendant, fulfilled the Jewish role and provided a way to usher people into his presence, into this redemptive covenant to save them from evil, decay, and death. And by God's grace, Paul and many other messengers, i.e. apostles, are spreading this good news like wildfire so that those who hear will respond with faith, i.e. with believing faith, trust and obedience to God, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. So, Paul says, yes, I know about your bickering. I know about your divisions. I know about the chaos that's happening. But for this one moment, let's worship together because it's, there's good news. It's good news. The good news has arrived. Now we move on. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, requesting if perhaps now, at last by the will of God, I will succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want to you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, just as among the rest of the Gentiles. See, it takes a faith that believes and trusts God who raised Jesus from the death to withstand the pressure and persecution towards Christians in Rome. It takes great faith, a faith that believes and trusts God who raised Jesus from the dead. This is the power that we have to withstand the pressure and persecution towards us today. Here you have Caesars who claim to be the son of God or sons of God, 
proclaiming that the good news was their birthdays and that they are the messiahs of the world. These Caesars believed that they were the king of the world. Yet Christians believe a completely different kingdom. Their hope is not in Caesar, but in Jesus. Believing and trusting in the risen King Jesus rather than Caesar. This faith is what unites Christians around the world back then and unites us today. Regardless of our different flavors of worship or how we see the end times would transpire or what communion means, how churches should govern or who should be at the pulpit or not, at all, seven-day creation or evolution, this faith unites us all. Let's move on. Verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the uncultured, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is in the power, oh, sorry, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous one will live by faith. Paul ends this segment with a bang. However, the English translations that we have, whether it be NIV, ESV, or whatnot, or the NASB that I'm currently using, we do not fully capture everything. So I'll do my best to summarize how the Greek New Testament lays it out. First of all, we have to get the definition of faith and belief. Paul uses the same Greek word for believe and faith, which is called pistuo, which you see right here. So both believe and faith are the same word, pistuo. We also need to work backwards because that's how the Greek started with. It first starts with the righteousness of God. In Genesis, we knew that Abraham's pistuo declared him as righteous, and therefore God's righteousness is equated to God's pistuo to the covenant in providing redemption for the world, i.e. freeing the world from evil, death, and decay. But how was God's righteousness, i.e. pistuo, revealed? How did he reveal it? Through God's power, which is the gospel, i.e. Jesus' death and resurrection and lordship over the world. God's pistuo in fulfilling his covenant through Jesus declared God as righteous. And therefore, when we respond with our pistuo, we too are declared as righteous. Pistuo to what, though, you say? Believe and faithful to what? To the power of God, i.e. the gospel, the fulfillment of his covenant. Jesus. And because it is this pistuo, everyone has access to the salvation that God, through his power, the gospel, has made available. This pistuo is what unites us all and declares us as righteous, i.e. faithful, and hence we have eternal life. Paul, knowing that he had to write a letter to unite both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, concludes with these three verses, 14, 15, 16, 17, going four verses, concludes, these, uh, concludes this whole segment with these four verses by saying that salvation is for everyone who has this one pistuo, this one believing, faithful pistuo. This is the most crucial part of Christianity. This is what unites us all. Everything else comes from this pistuo. 
So before we talk about my issues or your issues with each other that divides us, Paul says, let's focus on what unites us. It's pastuo, the pastuo that we have in the power of God, the gospel, Jesus. I want to end off with a story about this pastuo and the, you know, the differences that we have amongst Christian faiths, uh, the Christian, various Christian expressions, I should say, not Christian faith, Christian expressions. There was one time when I was uh, living in Vancouver and I was studying at Regent and uh, I went to, and normally my route would be taking the 43 bus along 41st Avenue all the way to UBC. And uh, in between, I would stop by at Oak Ridge Mall just to grab a bite to eat before I go. And so as I got off the Canada line, I went up and uh, lo and behold, I met a few uh, young 20-year-old Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, or were they Mormons? I couldn't remember. I think they were Mormons. And then they, and interesting enough, um, they approached me, of course, and, uh, you know, was ready to do their thing, their whole uh, proposition and proposal to maybe uh, entice me to be interested in Mormonism. Uh, I told them, you know, before you go on, before you waste your breath and waste your effort on me, I just want to let you know I'm a part-time pastor and also studying at Regent. And uh, they go, oh, uh, and they asked me a question. So I got a question for you. Why do Christians have so many denominations? Because it seems like you do not agree with any, uh, each other. I told them and responded with this one phrase. Well, Christianity and denominations, the denominations are like flavors of ice cream. There's strawberry ice cream, chocolate ice cream, vanilla, even raspberry, you know, all different flavors. So all the denominations are different flavors of ice cream. What's really important are the basic ingredients of ice cream. Because if you do not have the basic ingredients of ice cream, you won't have ice cream. You might even have fudge. And so I asked the person, the most important thing to ask yourself is, are you ice cream? Do you have the basic ingredients of ice cream? Because if you don't and you only have the flavor, chances are you're just a flavor. You're just fudge or you're just strawberries. You're not ice cream. And so the, and the person, of course, didn't respond because, you know, they are trained to respond to certain questions, not to these type of nuanced ones. So they left. My point is for today, though we as Christians and Catholics and whatever, Protestants, Reformed, Luther and Baptists, uh, Presbyterians, Unitarians, whatever, Whatever denomination we, you and I are in, or whatever, whoever, whatever affiliation you are in, sure, we may have different flavors. However, one crucial element that unites us all, that we can call ourselves united as God's people, is our pastuo, is our faith in Jesus. That Jesus is God, Son of God, risen from the dead, and now Lord of the world. Our faith unites us all. That faith is the key ingredient that unites us all as God's people. Regardless of all the differences that we may have, like I mentioned, whether we see it 
seven-day creation, evolution, whether we believe that women should be at the pulpit or not, whether it be um, like how we see communion, transubstantiation, or co-substantiation, whether it be whatever, or how we see infant baptism, it doesn't matter. What really truly matters, as Paul says, is what unites us, and that is our pistuo, our faith, our believing faith in Jesus, in the good news, the power of God. Amen. Amen.